Hi, and welcome to season five of Business Book Talk. Hope you're going to enjoy this new season. I'm really excited about it. I'm sure you will really enjoy some of the books that we have planned. So let's get on with the show. Hey, everybody. It's Bob again. I've got shadow work, the unpaid, unseen jobs that fill your day. I've got Craig Lambert with me today. Greg, thanks for coming on the show. A pleasure to join you, Bob. So I just wanted to ask you, what motivated you to write this book? Why did you think it was important to bring something like this out? Well, it began a few years ago, one evening when I was in a supermarket, ready to check out my groceries with a cashier. And I looked about 20 feet to my left and I saw an attorney I knew slightly. And she was a woman who uh, I knew was a senior partner in a downtown firm, someone who had to be earning well into the six figures, probably $300,000 a year or more. And I saw her scanning and bagging groceries. And of course they were her own groceries. Um, but I thought about that and I, I realized, gee, that's a minimum wage job uh, she is doing there. And she's not even getting minimum wage. She's getting nothing whatsoever uh, at this self-serve checkout. And I began to think, gee, what's going on here? Um, we, we're, we're finding this phenomenon of, of many of us doing jobs like pumping our own gas or checking in at the airport on a kiosk on our, our own, perhaps bagging, putting a luggage tag on our bags at the airport or building our own Ikea furniture. Um, we're doing a lot of things for nothing that used to be someone else's job. And uh, I, I started to think harder about that. And I, I said, gee, gosh, there is a phenomenon here. And in the first chapter of my book, I call it middle-class serfdom because we, we have many people who are ostensibly middle class doing jobs that uh, are unpaid in every sense of the word and, and very often someone else is now unemployed because they used to do that job. Yeah, it was definitely a double whammy situation because you, you're right, it, it's people that really don't have the time to be doing these things uh, and for sure they're not getting paid. Why are Why are they putting up with it? I mean, really... Do the large organizations, are they struggling that hard to survive that they need to be cutting away and cutting away and cutting away till they're actually not actually providing anything? Well, you know, no good capitalist can look at an opportunity of this sort of saying, well, gee, would I rather have my customers doing this for nothing or would I rather be paying staff uh, salary and benefits to be doing it uh, on my payroll? Uh, that that's not uh, no one uh, who's who's a serious business person can look at that and say, "Gee, that's not that that's a pretty good that that looks like a pretty good deal for me." And so the incentives are in place to to get consumers doing shadow work since it reduces expenses. It it helps your bottom line if you're an owner. Now, from the consumer's standpoint, sometimes there is no alternative. You may go to a gas station, and uh, the only kind of pump is self-serve pump. In fact, in the uh, 48 continental U.S. states, only two of them uh, have laws that make self-serve illegal, New Jersey and Oregon. But everywhere else, uh, self-serve rules, and it's generally the predominant form. Furthermore, many people like self-serve. They prefer it, in fact, doing the job themselves because they feel it will save them time, uh, they'll get out of the petrol station quicker, and and very often they do. It's uh, one of the few places uh, in the economy where where those with a larger amount of money who get full serve may actually have to wait more than those who are spending less. 
I'm curious, do you actually pay less when you do self-serve? Well, at one time, there were two prices uh, to take the gasoline uh, example again. Uh, there was a full-serve price and a self-serve price. And so you would pay uh, a smaller bill if you were doing the pumping on your own. In that sense, you're getting, at least indirectly, a pay, a payday. But uh, in most cases, most shadow work, there is no advantage financially when you check out your own groceries and scan them and bag them yourself. Uh, you don't get a break on the price. And in most cases, that is what you will find. I remember uh, many, many years ago going in and negotiating because uh, I said, look, I'm, I, I want to pay cash, so please give me 3% back. And they go, what for? I said, well, because if I pay with my Visa card, Visa's going to take 3%, so I want my 3% back. And they go, oh, we can't do that. So, so what are you talking about? You're forcing me to use my Visa card, whereas if I brought in cash, you should be giving my 3% back because then you're going to keep my 3%. They couldn't get it over their heads. It blew their mind. Mm -hmm. Do you think that uh, we should be having more more of an attitude like that, where we go in and, and actually understand the economics of what's going on, and if everybody did it, maybe it would uh, cause people to think about this a little differently? Well, you know, Bob, there could be a movement at some point in, in that direction. <laughs> um, for example, consider Facebook. Now, there is a an organization, a business that is worth billions and billions of dollars and has more than a billion users. And when they went public a few years ago, um, some of their users recognized the fact that the content that Facebook owns and sells to its advertisers is in fact uh, content that was created by the users. All the Facebook members who put up all their posts, their data, their, their preferences, the movies and music they like, and all their friends and their pictures and everything about them, that is the content of the Facebook website, and that is what it has available to sell. And it was created free of charge by the users. Now, the users got their enjoyment. They got the use of Facebook without any fee charged to them. And that is an example of one of the Internet adages which I mention in my book, and that is, if you are not paying for the product, you are the product. And in fact, yes, those users are who Facebook is selling. And when they went public uh, at that moment a couple of years back, some of those users said, hey, where's my cut? Why aren't I getting any piece of the revenue here? Because after all, I'm the one that made Facebook what it is. Well, I think uh, an even more uh, shocking example of that one is the Huffington Post where they actually had many, many, many writers putting stuff in, and uh, when it was sold for millions and millions and millions of dollars, they received nothing for it. That's right. They just got the glory of appearing in HuffPost, and maybe that's enough for, for a lot of them uh, to get published at all um, with a fairly prestigious audience. It also applies to all the consumer reviews that are done. Think about the websites uh, for almost any product or service are loaded with consumer reviews now. Yelp, things like Yelp or TripAdvisor, where you're getting free reviewing services from the customers who have been to that restaurant or that hotel. They're putting it up there, and if you read them, you may take them with a grain of salt or just be entertained by them. But in any case, the reviewers are working for free, and they aren't getting a cut of any of the uh, revenue that uh, the overarching business is taking in. Hmm. Why do you think this is happening? It can't be 100% greed-driven. I think it's a combination of both, where, where uh, to go back to uh, 
in in a store or in a gas station, the consumer does it. They'll say, "Oh, look, I'm not. I, I don't care. I just want to get this done as quickly as possible because I'm so busy. I have no time in my life." Uh, the other side of the the, the coin is, "Oh, I want to do this. I want to be recognized on Facebook by my own my friends as as somebody that's a big contributor and get their 15 seconds of fame." So there's got to be something that is driving us for that. Why are we thinking this way and why don't we care? Well, there are a few engines that are driving it and one of the biggest ones is technology. The simple progress of technology and robotics makes certain things possible that weren't possible before. Uh, There's a phrase I use about how shadow work has infiltrated the office and uh, the phrase is the democratization of expertise. There are certain bases of information that used to be restricted to experts, and now anybody can access them. Uh, A common example would be travel agents. 25 years ago, travel agents were seen as this group of uh, professionals who had access to particular information databases. They could uh, look up things uh, about travel and airfares and hotels that the consumer could not access. And uh, and then the internet came along and made available these travel websites like Orbitz and Expedia and Kayak.com, which democratized that expertise, that anybody now could go online and find the information, at least that they thought was the same as what the travel agents were using. In fact, the travel agents have their own system called the Global Distribution System, which is quite a bit more sophisticated and costs a lot. They never go to Orbitz to book travel. But in the meantime, about half of the travel agencies in the United States have disappeared uh, because the, uh, the airlines and hotels and car rental companies are selling directly to the consumer uh, as that information has become democratically, so to speak, accessible. It's a good thing and it's a bad thing. Number one, it's good because we feel that we can do it ourselves. Number two, we think we're, we're getting more benefit. But on the other side, it's we're doing the work ourselves, so why aren't we being compensated? And number two, if we are not uh, getting access to all the data, then we might actually be paying more just thinking we're not paying more. Correct. Yeah. So what's going to happen? I mean, in the long run, people are going to figure this out, or are we going to continue to be sheeple and uh, basically – not to worry about it, and, and uh, in, in another five or six years, it's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. I mean, the whole thing for me is it, it seems to be more of an unsustainable reality where eventually uh, you're going to get a lot of uh, pissed-off consumers. They're going to figure out something else, and a lot of organizations uh, and companies may collapse. Well, that's right. I mean, there is some pushback going on already. Um, you have seen uh, – in, in a few places, supermarket chains removing self-service checkouts. Uh, it happened here in Boston at the uh, Shaw's chain. The big Y chain, based in Hartford, Connecticut, has taken out self-service checkouts with the uh, explanation that they wanted a customer-friendly uh, environment and that dealing with a live human cashier was friendlier than dealing with a robotic uh, kiosk. Now, um, you also have the problem that amateurs are usually not as good as professionals at doing things. This isn't just entry-level jobs that shadow work affects. It can also affect quite sophisticated uh, kinds of professions like lawyers and doctors. You can now download 
contracts, leases, wills, forms from the internet that you could fill out yourself and essentially become your own lawyer. Uh, you might have a real certified lawyer check it out just to be sure it's right, but it, it certainly means that uh, you are doing a lot of the job that an attorney once did. In the case of doctors, there's WebMD and there is uh, the Wikipedia, which physicians themselves consult a great deal. The, I have a, a doctor friend who has a cartoon in his office of a patient speaking with his doctor and is saying, well, doctor, I, I've already diagnosed myself on Wikipedia, but I'm just coming to you for a second opinion. And uh, you're, you're, you're seeing things like this where uh, professional work is being delegated and shared by, let's say, the patient and the doctor. And in some ways, that's good. The patient is more active. It's empowering to the patient. On the other hand, the patient um, does not have the same expertise uh, about decision-making as the physician. And in the, in the long run, we may have to face the consequences of that or have, somehow sort it out. I'll give you one example. In my own case, I went on a vacation this winter to the Caribbean, and I started to do some research online. And after a while, I realized I could easily take 10 hours doing this, comparing all the airlines, the islands, the packages, the hotels, the deals. I said, you know what? I think I'll have a travel agent handle this for me. And I paid a $75 fee and had her take care of it, and it went fine. So do you think the, the day of, of, of word of mouth is, is basically dropping off the radar where, where people aren't actually actively thinking that way and they're just going and becoming automatons and they said, no, I'll just do it myself because I think it's a better thing? Well, actually, Bob, one of the effects of shadow work is to edit out the human being from many commercial transactions. It may be the the cashier in the supermarket whom you don't see anymore because you're checking out at a kiosk or the hotel clerk uh, whom you don't see when you check in because you check in with a robotic kiosk there in the hotel lobby. Um, now that kiosk may be very efficient but there's something to be said for chatting a little bit with the hotel live human employee. And maybe when you get up to your room you find that the Wi-Fi password uh, that you had didn't seem to work, and you can call the desk and talk to Charlotte, who you just checked in with, and she'll help you right out. If you call that kiosk, you're not going to get such good results. So there is a, there's a lot to be said for having humans in the transaction, and it's really part of community life that's been around for centuries and, and, and millennia, really. When you uh, uh, remove the human element from these transactions, you often find that um, you're eroding uh, uh, one of the pieces, the parts of community uh, experience that's really the glue of, of uh, life in a village or a town or in, and even large cities. And it, uh, it, it's a, and a characteristic of shadow work that very often the consumer ends up doing the thing very satisfactorily. To, they can do it to their own standards and their own way and kind of customize it. If you're making your own salad at a salad bar, you can make it just the way you want to by means of self-service. Um, however, it does tend to silo you. Uh, shadow work often silos the consumer into a little bubble where they're dealing with a robot, a, a kiosk, a piece of technology instead of another human being. And uh, it's isolating in that sense, and, and 
in that way, uh, it can remove part of the, uh, the joy and the fun of, uh, of life uh, in a society. Yeah, it's it's interesting, too, because I think what's happening is two things are happening at the same time. And when they come together, we're really going to be in trouble. One is what you're talking about is the kiosk-driven service done and manned by us, the consumer. But the other side is where you have a free service like Facebook or Google or, or any other faceless organization where they provided a free service. And then something goes wrong and there's no customer service because they've never, ever had it and they're in no way ready to deal with it. And and that became very apparent with um, Google when they started to actually sell hardware with their phones. Their phones would sell out or a phone would break and there was no way to actually talk to a human. You just had to do these forms and there were some very, very frustrated people. Now, when we get the two of those things coming together, you're looking at a... N- well, it's, it's going to be a major problem for the people that are involved in the organization. And it's going to be a major problem for the people that are interfacing with that organization because there's no communication. Do you think that uh, as more and more companies jump on this bandwagon, we're going to come to a, a basically a tipping point where we're going to get some major kickback and uh, we could have an economic crisis caused by this because basically people would refuse to utilize those organizations, boycott them, and then they, the companies that they need to be providing the service go bankrupt or uh, the, uh, the econ- not the economy, but basically the service providers are unable to change fast enough and still uh, re- retain enough profit to survive. Well, well, we'll see what happens, Bob. I, I don't know if it'll go as far as that, that there'll be mass bankruptcies, but it's certainly true that people uh, do not appreciate the lack of customer service. It, it used to be that you could call up on the phone and someone would say, how can I help you? Well, even to get a person and requires jumping through a lot of hoops these days, and you enter your account number first thing, and then after five more minutes and more hoops, you finally get someone on the phone and the first thing they say is, what is your account number? Uh, There's a lot of frustration. If you go to a big box store, uh, a place like Target, uh, and try to find any service to find a a salesperson, it's like wandering the Yukon territory looking for a human settlement. Uh, You know, there's no hello, hello, nobody, nobody around. And if you find someone, very often they aren't very well informed about the products. Now, if you go back to the 80s, when personal computers came on the landscape. This was a fairly technically sophisticated product for most consumers, and they needed a lot of education. And there were technical support people, smart, very well-versed, trained people on the phone, and and they would help the consumer. You could call technical support. Well, that was a very labor-intensive and very expensive proposition. And what has happened is that the... um, the information uh, technology corporations have have made technical support into a thing where the first line of defense is FAQs, the frequently asked questions where you get a, a basically a boilerplate answer. Secondly, email, possibly live chat on online, and uh, at last resort, a telephone call. And what has happened too is that consumers have become the technical support. If you want to get a question answered about HP or Apple or Microsoft, very often the real stop is to a user group. 
where your fellow consumers are there and ready to answer your questions. You post your question up and every Apple user or every BMW driver in the world um, can see it if they're part of that group. And, and very often they will give you the answer. But those people are, again, shadow workers. They're working for free. And they've taken the jobs uh, that were once done by these very uh, sophisticated technical support people. So, you know, this is a problem. So do you have any um, ideas about how we can move away from it gradually or, or have some sort of solution that will make the consumer more viable and the companies that are providing products and services uh, still make enough money to survive? Well, shadow work is a very large and complex phenomenon. There are, there are a lot of facets to it, and where there are solutions in one place, they will not necessarily map over to another place at all. Um, I do believe that, you know, my book is more or less the first one to explain what shadow work is and to shine a light on it. I consider it a field guide to the phenomenon, and the first step, as with most any problem, is awareness. Instead of sleepwalking through this and doing this kind of shadow task without realizing we are, first step is to, to notice that we are doing it. When that happens, then you may be able to make a choice to not do it. Uh, take a big one, like commuting. Now, that's if there's a form of shadow work that is very costly, one estimate I was able to unearth would put it at 4400 U.S. dollars per year and approximately five full-time weeks of time traveling to and from the job. It's the unpaid job of getting to the job. Well, commuting is so woven into daily life, people don't even consider it shadow work, but it's definitely unpaid work we do on behalf of a business or organization, and that's my definition of shadow work. Now, with commuting, you may be able to come to your boss and say, now, how about some telecommuting, at least a couple days a week? So I would stay home or flexible work schedule where I can come in not at rush hour, but at some more uh, civilized time of day when everybody else isn't driving to work. Or thirdly, living closer to where you work. Um, if you're an entrepreneur, you, you might even be able to put your offices near your home. Um, but basically trying to reduce the time spent commuting because you're aware that it's essentially uncompensated time. There may be analogous things you can do uh, in other parts of your life on, sh on shadow work to, uh, to cope with it, and in other places there won't be anything at all. You can go to a restaurant and instead of making your own salad at the salad bar, you might decide it's more fun to spend that five minutes sitting at the table with my family or friends talking and let someone in the kitchen make the salad. That's your choice. It just depends on what trade-offs you're willing to make and, and what your priorities are. You know, when you were discovering and, and putting this book together for, for you know, the, the awareness campaign that it is, um, for you, what was a, a crystallization of something you already knew and you had a, like an aha moment? One kind of surprising event and as I was learning about the different forms of shadow work, and I'm still learning about them, uh, was thinking about gift cards, gift certificates. Because that's always seemed like a nice thing. Here's a gift. How can you not like a gift? Um, there is a new wrinkle, though, in that with a gift card, the job of buying the gift has now become my job. <laughs> it's, it's the recipient's job to do the shopping and the purchasing. Uh, the giver is really just picking up the bill. 
Um, and, and, and that's sort of an interesting reversal. I had a friend who's an executive who got a Christmas present of a, a Williams-Sonoma gift card together with a catalog. And all very nice, but th it then became his task to figure out what gift he wanted. Once again, he can give exactly the gift he wants to himself, but it's his time and his investment of uh, energy in choosing it. Well, and not only that, there is something a little bit different about that. Yeah, he'll get the best gift because it's, it may not be exactly what he wants because of the budget restrictions, but he'll get something that he, he could, yeah, maybe I could use something like that. But there's a big difference with knowing a person well enough to be able to give them a gift that will make them smile. And it's not about the price of the gift. It's about does it fit that person and will they get a kick out of it? That is what a gift's for, not to basically reward somebody uh, just out of the blue for, you know, or not out of the blue, but on their birthday, that's what it's about. It is a recognition, <clears throat> recognition that that person um, has value in your life and that person, uh, you can prove that to the person that person because you know them well enough to give them a shirt that is the right color. And you've gone and found one and said, look, at here's, here, here you go. And they open it and say, oh, this is nice. Now, it might not be exactly what they're looking for, but eventually they might discover that it becomes their favorite shirt. That's an incredible gift. Well, exactly. You've really put your finger right on the, the bullseye there, Bob, because that is the essence of, of, of gift giving at its best. It's when you, you know someone well enough, you've paid enough attention to them, that you can you you know their preferences, and sometimes you might even be one step ahead of them. Uh, you give them something that they wanted, but they they wouldn't have dared to think about for themselves. But it's the perfect fit for who they are. That all disappears when we give a gift certificate instead, because there's no need to contemplate the person beyond, let's say, what chain store uh, they might shop at. Uh, it's it's not a personal. Uh, recognition or the kind of personal relationship uh, involved in the gift-giving uh, event. Now, for you, and I've kind of brought this up before, but I'm curious, you know, you're, this, is your, this is your mantra right now. This is your thing. Um, are you finding that when you discuss this with people, at, you know, at, at dinner parties and networking events and, and whatever, that you get the same response every time, which is basically, oh, I want to do this because I feel I, I'm doing a better job or uh, I want to do this because uh, I think I'm more efficient. Are we so frustrated in our modern lives with the inefficiency and the incompetence of most organizations and the staff in those organizations because they're not trained properly that we feel like, you know what, just let me do it myself. Let me get in. Let me get out. You're wasting my time. You're pissing me off. It's a terrible shopping experience. It's a terrible brand experience. And that's what's kind of driven us and organizations to think this way. Yes, I will say that in, in my dinner table conversations in the last few years, I have never met anyone who couldn't relate to the phenomenon. People all recognize shadow work and say, yes, indeed, it has become part of life, and I predict it will continue to grow for the reasons we spoke about in, in terms of the incentives for businesses. And as you're saying, often the consumer would like to, to just throw up their hands and say, I'm tired of dealing with incompetent uh, staff. I'll just do it myself and get it right. And uh, they, they may well do that. The only thing is they are chipping in with more and more of their free time. Their leisure time is becoming work time, unpaid work time, as they enter that realm of middle-class serfdom. So uh, there, is a, there is a price to be paid. There's a tax uh, here that is due when you do that. And the other thing is that this mounts up, and it does take a bigger and bigger chunk of your day as more and more shadow work shows up. 
it doesn't always work out either. I had a friend who was flying from Amsterdam back to Boston, and uh, there was a machine, a kiosk, to give out the luggage tags. And the travelers were being asked to print out their own baggage tag and affix it to their bag and put it on the conveyor belt. Well, nice enough, except a lot of people didn't know how to do this. They weren't getting it. Maybe the kiosk wasn't well designed, but the line just got longer and longer as people were fuming since these amateurs in front of them were not able to negotiate the job. She went over to the KLM agent. There was a woman standing alone at a, behind a desk there and said, can you help me with my bag? And she smiled and said, sure. Immediately checked the bag in and even waved off a little extra weight without any surcharge. So there, there, there can be some um, pushback uh, that is encountered simply due to the fact that the consumer is not necessarily as good at doing this as the trained professional. Yeah, and you bring up a good point there. It's if you're going to be doing this, then you have to become the expert. And if you're not willing to put in that time and energy or, or have the wherewithal to do that, then yeah, you're going to be causing yourself a lot of trouble. I mean, remember way back in the day, I was doing some travel myself and uh, I ended up with a 10-hour layover. Now, I had done some research before that because as soon as I saw that there was a 10-hour layover, I called up a uh, travel consultant and uh, basically asked her, hey, what's with this 10-hour layover? Can't I get a shorter one? She says, no, but they have to give you certain compensations. They have to take you from the airport. They have to pay for that. They have to put you in a hotel for X amount of hours. They have to give you two meal tickets uh, at that hotel, and then they have to drive you back uh, two hours before you're due for your flight out of there. I said, okay, good to know. And so I got in this big lineup when everybody got off the plane, and I said, oh, hi, it's Bob. Uh, where, where's the car and where do I go to the hotel? And the guy's, what are you talking about? We're going to give you, a, here's your meal ticket for a sandwich. I said, no, 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 no. Under law, it says you have to do this. Now, you're either going to do this or I'm going to make a big stink about it and uh, there's going to be a problem. He says, oh, okay, hang on, hang on, hang on. I'll do it. So the guy behind me heard the same thing and he came to his and I'll have what he's having. And so the, <laughs> so the two of us, Basically got chauffeured to the hotel. We got given two very nice meals at the hotel. I had a nice little uh, four-hour nap and uh, then was back and refreshed. And I walked into this uh, airport again and there was literally hundreds of people trying to lie on chairs looking very disgruntled, very pissed off because they didn't know what their rights were. And I think this is a fundamental um, pushback point for a lot of people. Yeah, you may think you're saving time, but you're also taking on the responsibility. And that's fine, but that means that you have to take the time and energy to understand the technology that you're buying or understand the services that are being provided and be able to dig down and really know your rights. And uh, I don't think people get that part of um, this new phenomena that you're talking about in the book. Well, exactly. That You wouldn't have known that had it not been for the travel consultant that uh, informed you about it. That's an example in, in medicine and healthcare that I'm thinking of. Uh, it's in my book of where a fellow who I call uh, uh, Andreas uh, received a pretty serious diagnosis of cancer. And his oncologist sat down with him and gave him a long explanation of three different options for treatment, including chemotherapy surgery and radiation with all the risks and rewards of both 
the uh, probabilities, uh, even some political questions as to whether certain drugs would be approved for use, and uh, he, he laid it all out uh, in great complexity for his patient. And then at the end, the doctor says, so, which one would you like? Well, <laughs> the patient uh, said, well, wait a minute, doctor, I, I thought that was your job <laughs> to choose the best course of treatment for me. And uh, in fact, traditionally it has been, uh, but this doctor is empowering as a patient to say, uh, you, it's your life and your priorities, and, and indeed it's correct to say, what, what, would, what would you like to do? But as you're saying, when you start doing this kind of shadow work, you also accept responsibility and you have to start educating yourself and start to know things that you might not have needed to know before because you were delegating them to a professional. And now when it's your job, um, even fairly, fairly serious uh, undertakings like uh, cancer treatment can fall on your lap and uh, you are going to have to collaborate at least with your physician in choosing the course you, uh, you uh, undertake. Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a very interesting point because, you know, I have an amazing working relationship with my doctor and I use the word working is because I want to have that back and forth with my doctor. I'll go in and I say, look, this is my problem. Um, you know, I've, I've got a lot of pain in my Achilles tendon here. What do you recommend? Uh, what do you think? And he'll mention this and that. But then I can, because I've researched it, I can have an intelligent conversation with him. And I'm saying, well, what about this? What do you think about doing it this way? And, you know, I did look up that if I do this type of massage, it's going to help. Do you think I'm doing it right? Are there other things that I can I can do? So it's, it's taking those specialists and actually working with them uh, so that they can do a better job. So you're motivating them. You're becoming a better patient, a fun patient, somebody that they look forward to treating compared to somebody that sits down and grumpy when he says, fix it. That's the other end of the spectrum. And, and people that are service providers, if you're dealing with people like that, they tend to not um, get as good results. They tend to not uh, really appreciate the skill sets and the many, many, many years of education you have behind them and say, well, you know, can't we work together? So do you think there's a place for almost like a hybrid of what's happening? So we've, uh, we've gone to one extreme right on the right, we've gone uh, to this one extreme, and then eventually we're going to go to another extreme. But there might be a nice happy medium where people are going into uh, a situation like a, a like a, a department store or, or a grocery shopping scenario, and they know exactly what they want. Um, but there's also almost like a, a panel of experts there. So yes, I can check my things out because that's fast and efficient, but... That money that's saved has been reinvested uh, with a, a panel of people or maybe every aisle has an, a specialist in their, that aisle that you can consult if you want. Say, so, look, I'm, I'm thinking of doing this or this is a recipe that I'm into. And then they're kind of like an expert. They have a little iPad there and they can look stuff up. And so, you know, Joe, two, two aisles down, he's really good at that. Let me just call him over. Let's have Joe help us out. That would be an amazing service that people would like when they really needed it. And maybe that's the solution or at least a direction that this book is, is you know, we have a problem, we have, but what, what's, what can we do as consumers and people in this situation and, and what can company leaders that listen to the show do to be more aware of their options? Well, yes, uh, I believe you're right that 
most any professional would like to have a, a customer who is well-informed. And that opens up the possibility of a conversation, a dialogue where there's some mutual learning. And, uh, and they can do a better job with that customer who, who knows more about the options, so has some depth that they've acquired through their own shadow work, perhaps looking things up on Wikipedia or WebMD in the health uh, field. Um, there is, it is sort of a two-edged sword, Bob, in that um, you know, doctors are very active users of Wikipedia because you do get the most up-to-the-minute information posted there. But it isn't always correct. Uh, I have some data in my book about the percentage of time in which what, what would be the consensus of peer-reviewed journals does not match what you would take away from Wikipedia necessarily. Um, you, you have situations like the prescription drugs being advertised on television in the U.S. 25, 30 years ago, that didn't happen. After all, physicians prescribe these drugs, not patients. Only doctors are legally allowed to write the prescription. So why are there being uh, millions and millions of dollars spent on ads to consumers, to patients, for various prescription drugs? Well, it's because the, the informed patient is being informed by the pharmaceutical company. <laughs> and they go into their doctor and says, I would like Claritin uh, for my condition. And if it's as good as any alternative, most doctors are willing to say, well, sure, uh, why not use that brand name? And uh, New Zealand and the United States are the only countries in the world that permit this kind of advertising. I'm sure it's very effective in selling drugs because it's persisting now for more than 20 years. Oh, definitely. It's, it's a great way to sell drugs because what it, uh, a lot of times with doctors and, and actually with anything, any consumer product, if a customer comes in and asks for a specific thing, they kind of give it, oh, okay, now I'm not responsible for, for giving you advice. Uh, I remember way back in the day when I was into stereos, when they were these big giant component units, and this is aging me a little bit, but you know, I'd go into the store and I would spend hours hanging out of that store talking with the technical guys and their love of their life was these component units. You know, Should I get a Marantz? Should I get a Sony? Should I do this and that? And I was a total nerd about the thing and I, I was a very, very well-informed consumer. These days, you don't have that as an option, and the person you're talking to tends to be just as ignorant as you are about the product. So we rely on um, what the advertisers are saying, which is a horrible thing, because then it just takes all the – well, number one, takes all the fun out of buying stuff. But number two, you really don't know if this is going to work. You really don't know if this is what you need to buy, and it all goes back to unless you uh, – do the research and discover what you really need and what you really need to, um, what product you need to buy to move you forward in your, your quest for a better life. And then uh, it's, not their, it's not their responsibility. But what's happened now, it's gone too far in the wrong direction. And they haven't been, like I said earlier, taking that time and energy and monies that's been sent and reinventing the experience for people. Well, yes, you're, you're uh, right. When you get your education on anything purely from advertisers, uh, it's going to be a very biased education indeed. And I believe the point about liability uh, for the decision is an important one. If to go back to healthcare for a second, 
if uh, the physician can put in her notes, a uh, statement the patient came in and asked for Lipitor, um, that's there on the record. And, and in a sense, that patient has relinquished her right to complain in the future about it because it's, it's there on the record that they requested this drug and the doctor went along with their wishes uh, for that particular statin medication. So uh, it gets the, the doctor off the hook uh, in terms of liability since the patient has made the decision in a sense and uh, that would be something that many professionals would welcome. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, um, the other person that's in part of this chain of command is the guy that's filling the prescription. And there's been a couple of cases where I've come in and I've gone to, to my pharmacist and I said, oh, hi, this is what I want to do. And the guy's awesome and we have a good relationship. And uh, a couple of times he's said, you know what, this is a terrible combination. Let me just look something up. And he'd do some research and say, you know what, uh, I'm just going to call your doctor. And, you know, call my doctor and say, look, this is what I'm recommending. And the doctor will say, great, thank you for helping me. So there is that chain of, of checks and balances that go with the medical uh, industry. But there's lots and lots of uh, suppliers of products that don't have that checks and balances in place. And it's kind of like we're, we're stuck with, with having to be responsible for those type of things, which is a bit of a bummer. But, you know, if you want to have a controlled life, I guess that's what you've got to give up. Uh, I wanted to ask you, for our listening audience, what is something that they can do today, besides buying your book, of course, that will enable them to help them get more control of this phenomenon that's going on? I think a big thing is to consider trade-offs. When you, when you make a decision to do shadow work, to put more priority, I, I think a lot of consumers could make a gain by putting a higher priority on their time and valuing their time uh, as opposed to only valuing money or efficiency or speed. Um, you know, Americans are always talking about saving time, saving money. Uh, and I've said sometimes that it's as if we all wanted to be uh, a society of fast-moving tightwads. Uh, <laughs> Good you know, one. There, but there are other things in life, and, and it seems to me, uh, in terms of pendulum swinging, the pendulum has swung rather strongly towards the side, the side of money and uh, uh, speed and efficiency. Uh, I will uh, uh, return to the idea of, of family and friends, uh, that that time that we spend uh, in, in throwing a Frisbee with our daughter uh, or taking a hike in the woods is time that is not involved in production or consumption. That's free time. That's leisure time. I call it play. Play is defined in my book as things we do for their own sake. Work is something we do for a goal. And play is getting eroded very often in favor of production and consumption, which now go on 24 hours a day, seven days a week, largely because of the Internet. You can buy a suit of clothes at 2 in the morning. You can trade stocks at 3 in the morning. You can always essentially be either buying uh, or, or working um, online. And, and your, your computer has come to rule life in that way. We have begun to lose sight of time and how infinite its value is. Uh, money is, of course, valuable. We all like money, but it's finite in its value. 
uh, money is something that goes so far and it gets, gets certain things done, but there's many things that doesn't get done. Whereas time is the most precious commodity we are given. And I would encourage all of us to, to regard time for the incredibly valuable thing it is and, and to protect our free time particularly from being eaten away by shadow work and the designs that large organizations have on it. Now, for people that are interested in getting your book and learning more about what you have to say, um, what should they do? Well, the book published by Counterpoint Press is available in bookstores uh, nationally as well as online. And uh, my website, craiglambert.net, that's C-R-A-I-G-L-A-M-B-E-R-T dot net, um, has all the information uh, there. And there are reviews and media coverage and the whole action is, is available there. Well, for everybody out there, I think this is an incredibly important book for you to be uh, reading. For one thing, just to be conscious of this, and because until I read this book, I just didn't look at it that way. I looked at the kiosks and all this extra work I was doing. It's like, hey, this is great. This is a positive thing. I was all gung-ho about it. Now, I'm starting to question a little bit, and that's all part of being a responsible adult, is questioning the reality around you. So I uh, highly recommend this book. Check it out. As he said, it's available everywhere, and if you want to be... Uh, be a shadow worker, go out there and use Amazon to get it for yourself. Uh, thanks for being on the show, Craig. A pleasure, Bob. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that show and do me a favor and tweet about it. Follow us on Facebook if you haven't done that already. We really appreciate it. See you next week.